Okay, we'll start with our motivation, which we always want to make our motivation as expensive as possible, especially when we're uh, doing, trying to create virtue and doing the Dharma activity. And that expansive motivation is expansive in terms of the number of living beings that we want to be affected by the virtuous actions that we're doing. So here we're being completely inclusive and motivating to be of benefit to each and every sentient being throughout the universe. And our motivation is also expansive in the kind of benefit that we want to extend. So it's not uh, just giving food and clothing and shelter and medicine, which of course is very wonderful to do. It is developing uh, the motivation to be able to free living beings from cyclic existence once and for all, so then they don't have to ever worry about having enough food, clothing, shelter, and medicine, because they'll be free of having a body like the kind of body that we have now that gets old and sick and dies. So to be able to benefit sentient beings in that way, we definitely have to progress along the path ourselves first. And so that's why we're here this weekend to really learn the Dharma and put it into practice for that long-term purpose of benefiting each and every living being in the highest way, being able to help them to gain full awakening to generate that kind of motivation for the whole weekend and especially for this evening. This evening, usually I'm give a, uh, I've been giving a teaching on a text on the stages of the path. And we're towards the end of that text. And so the topic is dealing about with dependent arising and emptiness, which is also the topic that was uh, is the theme of How to See Yourself as You Really Are, which is the book that we're also going to be talking about this weekend. And the thing is that with the how to see yourself as you really are, I've been doing it section by section for how many years now? Five? This is the fifth or the sixth? This is the, anyway, five or six years. Uh, And this is going to be the last year. We're going to finish the text this year, hopefully. And... uh, (laughs) So some of you have been here for the entire series. Some of you have been to one or another and haven't made it for all. Uh, So I'll try and tie things in as best as I can 
I hope you have the book and did some reading before you came because that would, you know, really help you be where we're at in the book right now. Uh, and I, so I wanted to talk a little bit about dependent arising and emptiness this evening, uh, which will fit in with the Lumrim teachings. Uh, but first, there was a homework assignment that I gave uh, the group last week. And uh, so I just wanted to go through that and get some people's comments on it. So the, uh, the homework assignment has to deal with, and this is very good for those of you who are just coming fresh too, is we often talk about uh, two types of cognizers, two kinds of mind that know objects. So one kind of cognizer is a direct perceiver. So for example, the visual direct perceiver sees the colors of the cup, the audio direct perceiver hears the sound of the fan. The yeah, olfactory deck, uh, direct perceiver uh, smells the, the lilacs. If you haven't smelt them, go out into the garden. They're almost over, so don't wait. Um, you know, the gustatory... Uh, consciousness direct perceiver um, perceives taste, the tactile one yeah, perceives touches and different physical sensations, and the mental one knows mental objects, but we don't usually have uh, at our level so many mental direct perceivers. Most of what our mind does at our level is thinks Okay, the mental consciousness is the one that thinks, that conceptualizes, that plans and dreams and imagines and remembers. Okay, and so those are two different kind of minds, the direct perceivers and the conceptual consciousnesses that think. Because the direct perceivers know objects in the present moment as they are with all their different characteristics. Whereas a mental consciousness that is thinking or remembering, we're doing it in images, images that we call conceptual appearances. And these conceptual appearances take the details of many objects and kind of mush them together so we get a general image of what the the object is okay so for example if i say think of uh, your bedroom okay do you have an image in your mind your bedroom yeah even your eyes are open you know what it looks like okay but that's different than being in your bedroom and looking around and seeing the bed and the dresser and the altar and whatever else you have in there. Okay? So one of the homework assignments I gave to people was to, to work with this and to really try and focus to understand 
the differences in how our mind knows objects when we directly perceive them versus when we are remembering them or thinking about them. Okay. And so uh, part of the assignment was when you're eating to pause and uh, think, you know, because usually when we have the food in front of us, we have some uh, image of how it's going to taste. Yeah. And so we carefully put together you know, one bite full, mixing different things together that we think will bring us the utmost pleasure. Yeah, and we have an image of how that's going to taste. And so to do that and be aware of that and then to actually put the mouthful in our mouth and see if our image corresponds with the actual taste. Yeah. So that's a real good way to get the, the, an idea of the differences. So what happened, not only when you ate, but when you walked around all week, the people who uh, live here and who heard the assignment last week, uh, what happened when you were aware of that, you know, looking at a tree versus, you know, being aware of thinking of all the other trees and how it reminded you of something else in the past. So what was your experience? <laughs> so um, I had a very interesting one. One meal I wanted to have an apple, and um, I'm not keen on um, sour things, and the only thing in the fruit bowl was a green apple. And But I really wanted an apple, so I took it, and I was all prepared for, ooh, it's going to be sour. And I bit into it, and it was sweet. It was so weird. <laughs> <laughs> so it really shocked me and uh, tricked me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah this is food-related as well. Venerable Yeshe and I did this homework together. So someone had offered cheesecake. And so I got very excited taking a slice of cheesecake. And she was sitting across from me, and she went, oh, cheesecake. And Venerable Yeshe said, oh, I've been really good this week. I haven't had too much dessert. So this is the time. And she goes and gets a slice, too. And we're both sitting there with so much anticipation. And we eat the cheesecake, and we're both like... (laughs) And then finally, Venerable Yeshe says, oh, this tastes like plastic. (laughs) And we were both just, you know, the whole thing we built up around this cheesecake was uh, severely disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> this happened the very next day after you gave us the homework. Venerable Trini and I were driving back from Spokane, and we pulled into the Elk little post office. And it was a beautiful day. It was warm. It was about 4.30 in the afternoon, something like that. And I got out of the car just to put letters in the mailbox, and I was completely hit with this memory of November 7th, 2016. It was the same light. It was a very warm day. November that year was very warm, as you remember. And all of a sudden, I was absolutely transported to doing the same thing, getting out of the car, but thinking, what if Hillary doesn't win? What if what? What if Hillary doesn't win? (gasps) And I thought, that's a really dumb thought. Don't be so silly. But this fear started rising up in my body. And... So, you know, a week ago, I was just doing this thing, but I was completely transported back to that time. And then, of course, once I had that memory, the last 18 months just started rolling in, too, and I wasn't even present with what we were doing. (laughs) Yeah. 
So the conceptualization is pretty powerful, isn't it? Where it takes you. Um, since I have been teaching in Carbondale, Colorado, to drive from Denver to Carbondale, we have to go past Exit 41, which is an exit that I took when I was 18 years old for four years when I lived in Winter Park, Colorado, 1973 to 1979. I have not thought of this town since then, you know, very infrequently. So the past three times that I've driven by that exit, last week with Shane and Doris, all the memories about my rites of passage at Winter Park, Colorado Ski Resort, where I did drug, sex, and rock and roll. <laughs> and all the experiences, and even the faces of some of the people that I have not even thought about in 45 years, all comes tumbling uh, where I had been, Red Rocks, Idaho Springs, Berthoud Pass, just rolling in like it was just a few years ago. It was really, I'm surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's all mental consciousness. That's all conceptual appearances. And yet, emotionally, did you have a strong emotional reaction? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, wow, it's right there. Yeah, very strong emotional reaction. And you did too. Yeah. Even though that event is not, was not happening now, yeah, 45 years ago, right? You know, still how uh, a conceptual mind can bring up so much emotion, yeah, for something that is nowhere to be seen at this moment. I wasn't here for the teaching last week. However, um, as, as I was driving up here, we stopped in Walla Walla where I went to college and I had the distinct, it was more conceptual. I started having the same, where I went to college, I started having the same sorts of thoughts that I had when I was in college. <laughs> and and they, were, they were pleasant thoughts. So yeah. It was, it was very distinct. They weren't what? It was very distinct, the uh, experience I had. Mm, yeah. But again, you know, conceptual mind creating something based on sense data from the past. Yeah, sort of, sort of building on that theme. I've been experiencing lately uh, waves of nostalgia for events that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, waves of nostalgia for you know a time gone by, my childhood and all that. But when I... Uh, catch myself and stop and really examine it wasn't like that <laughs> ah. <laughs> I'm okay. leaving out a whole lot of memories I just I've, I've been remembering only some of the good things and not even accurately at that mm. okay so selective memory again creating a whole lot of emotions whereas the actual experience and the sense data from those years ago was much more plentiful and distinct and detailed and and so on. So the reason why this is important is you'll notice 
in your meditation this weekend that unless you have single-pointed concentration, distractions are going to come. And the distractions are predominantly conceptual minds that are remembering something in the past, imagining something in the future, worrying about something, uh, anxious about another thing. And so to really see that all these things are conceptual appearances to the mind. They're not happening now. Some of them never happened. Some of them happened, but not in the way we remember them. And, uh, but nevertheless, we generate these conceptions. We latch onto them as true, have a lot of emotional reaction to them, and then live our lives according to them. So we may uh, have had experiences and, uh, you know, and have selective memory of different things that we have an emotional reaction to and then solidify that so that anything we experience now that even faintly reminds us of what happened in the past elicits the same emotional reaction. Okay. Because we're not seeing things uh, as in the, with the detail of the direct perceivers as they are in the present. Okay? So it's... Uh, what you want to do with this is notice it, uh, but also... Uh, you know, see that conceptual minds can be very good for learning new things, but conceptual minds can also uh, trap us into uh, reacting to certain events in ways that are not very appropriate simply because of an experience we had long time ago in which it brought up certain emotions. Okay? So, in other words, the point is, take a little space in your mind and kind of have some curiosity and some doubt about what you're thinking. Okay, Like Dennis said, realizing that all this nostalgia was for something that didn't really happen the way he was nostalgic for it of having happened. Yeah. Okay. So this could be very useful to to help us kind of monitor our emotions so we don't start going here and there and getting anxious or getting excited over something that really isn't like we're thinking it is. Okay. Okay. Anybody have anything more about that before I go on? Yeah. I had one morning um, when I was coming in for tea and I made the tea and I sat down and drank and I was expecting Earl Grey. And then it was like I drank it and I thought, what happened to the Earl Grey? Did it evaporate? Like the taste was totally different. And the mind started making stories about, oh, the smell's gone away and it's become a different type of tea. And then after that, I remembered that I didn't make Earl Grey tea, but it would make a huge story. <laughs> 
Cheryl online. She says, often when I stub my toe, I immediately say, ow, and then I realize it actually didn't hurt at all. I was preparing for the hurt based on past experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a very, very good one, you know, anticipating the future because we have an image of what it's going to feel like. I don't know if you've ever watched young children. When they fall down, yeah, they look at their parents to see whether they should cry or not. Yeah, because they fall down, and if the parent is totally okay, the kid gets up, and it usually it's no big deal unless they got really hurt. You know, it's fell down, parents calm, okay, I get up, I go on. But if the parent is like, oh, then the kid immediately starts to cry, okay? Because they think that they should cry, not because something really hurts, okay? So in the same way as adults, we often have uh, knee-jerk emotional responses to things because we think that's how we should feel or that's how any reasonable person would feel or, you know, something like that. And yet maybe that's not our feeling at all. Okay? Like Cheryl going, ow. <laughs> yeah? Okay. So um, we were talking about different kinds of dependence. And uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama, uh, was, he speaks about two kinds of dependence, but then divides the last, in, the last one into two. So it works out to be three. So the first one is, uh, and actually they're not different kinds of, it, of dependence, they're different levels. So there's causal dependence, uh, the fact that effects depend on causes. So if we look around us, everything in this room that we see is an effect of some causes. Nothing here appeared magically without causes. Okay. We might look and, you know, the statue looks like it's just been there all the time, but actually it was created. That statue's wood, right? And so it's, you know, there's the whole history of the tree and the person who carved it and so on. Okay? When we look at the cup, the cup looks like it's just always been here, but actually it's something that was produced by causes. It doesn't exist independently self-powered, yeah, but exists under the power of the causes that brought it into existence. Okay, so this is one kind of dependence. And even though we know about causal dependence very well, and we live our lives more or less, not always, in a line with the belief of causal dependence. Still, we're so surprised when things uh, happen a certain way, yeah, or when things change. Like when you have some new clothes, and then all of a sudden there's spaghetti sauce on them. And it's like, 
How did that happen? That's not supposed to happen with my new clothes. Okay. Or the big one is you get a new car and then it gets dent. It's like, that's not supposed to happen to my new car. You know, because we think of this car as having come into existence like on its own. I mean, we know it was made, but when we look at it, it feels like it's just one thing that should not change. Yeah. And then, of course, it changes. And we're surprised. So it, it's showing us that what we st- understand intellectually about cause and effect hasn't really been integrated into our very lives because we're so surprised when things change and we didn't anticipate them changing. Have you uh, ever had the experience that you get the phone call, a phone call, and somebody died very suddenly and you're totally shocked? Yeah. So... When my dad died, he was it was at his birthday party for when he was turning 93. And I had spoken with him. Well, all of us had spoken with him the day before. We had sung, we had chanted part of his favorite Buddhist song, the 37 Practices of Bodhisattvas. Dad was fine. You know, I mean, he was fine for 93, but, you know... He wasn't sick, and he was just like usual. Yeah. And then the very next night, uh, I get a phone call that, you know, my sister and her family had been having a little get-together for Dad's birthday party, and he choked on a piece of meat. And like that, was gone. And... You know, I've been meditating on my dad dying for years. You know, I mean, I'm a Buddhist. You meditate on these kinds of things so that you're not surprised. And the first thing I wanted to say, but I stopped myself, was, but I just talked to him yesterday. As if talking to somebody yesterday meant that they couldn't possibly die today. You know, such a stupid thought. <laughs> yeah. Popping into the mind of somebody who's been meditating about the opposite. You know, because I had the image that my dad would fall, because he was always kind of falling down and knocking his head, that he would fall down and knock his head and he would be in the hospital for a long time and it would be a long, slow death. And this was not the way I had it planned. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's, there was knowledge about causal dependence, but my mind wasn't really in sync with the knowledge. Hmm? Okay. But what that causal dependence shows is that things... Uh, don't exist under their own power. You know, they're dependent on other things. And the things that they're dependent on, all the causes and conditions that produce them, are not the effect. 
Okay? So the causes and conditions that produce an effect have to cease before that effect comes into existence. Yeah? The, the, seed, the seed has to cease for the sprout to come into existence. Okay? So, you know, just... just uh, knowing that things exist dependent on other things, but they're not really understanding the full meaning of, you know, what that indicates. Yeah. That, that you know, what is the real meaning of things depending on things that are not them? Yeah. It means that whatever is appearing... Yeah, is made out of things that are not them. And that seems really strange when you think about it. Okay? The, a few weeks ago, I gave the example of a cake. Yeah? And, uh, you know, you have your cake, you have your flour and eggs and sugar and butter and spices and so on. You lay them all out before you start to bake. None of those are a cake. You put them all together in a bowl and stir them up. They're still not a cake. Even though they look completely different than they did when they were lined up on the counter. And then you put it in, an, uh, in the oven and you wait for a period of time and take it out. And again, it looks completely different from the way the batter looked. And then we call it a cake. And then it tastes like a cake. But when it was a bat, the batter, it didn't taste like a cake. And it was when it was the individual ingredients, it didn't taste like a cake. And so isn't it strange when you really think about it, that all these things that are not cakes that do not taste anything like cakes. You put them together, and then you, you heat them up in a certain way, and you get a cake that tastes like a cake. And if you heat them up in a certain way a little bit too long, then you get charcoal. <laughs> yeah? And then you have to ask, is a burnt cake a cake? Yeah, is a burnt cake a cake? Yeah. If you had a cake shop, would you put that burnt cake out in your cake shop? Yeah. It can't perform a function of a cake, can it? Yeah. So, uh, but you know, it's interesting when we start looking at things and seeing them as things that were created by causes and conditions and therefore are changing all the time. So that's one type of dependence. The second type is called mutual dependence. And this means that everything we see is designated and comes into existence uh, dependent on other things like long and short, big and small, heavy and light, you know, all those kinds of things come into existence 
dependent on, you know, like having a pair, okay? So parent and child, employer and employee. We talked about last week, uh, baseball game, baseball bat, baseball player, baseball, okay? And all those things are designated and become what they are in relationship to each other. Car and car parts, yeah, they exist in relationship to each other. You can't have a car without having car parts. You can't have things that are car parts without having cars, okay? So this mutual uh, designation, okay? That's the second one. And then the third uh, level of dependent arising is mere dependent designation. And this means that things don't have any essence that makes them what they are. They become what they are because our conceptual mind puts those things together and gives them a, a name and then, you know, assigns a function to them. And we all agree on that. Okay. So the example the Tibetans like to use is the president. Okay, That the president is merely designated. Nobody is born a president. Yeah, when they come out of the womb, nobody's born a president. They're designated because they won, in our country, the electoral college vote. Okay, okay. so this is not uh, counting the not my president uh, <laughs> that many of us said the day uh, after the election, okay, but that... Uh, you know, due to certain circumstances that we've all agreed on, then somebody can perform a a certain role. But that person doesn't have an essence inside of them that makes them that. Okay? So, you know, we can see that a a lot of uh, our education is learning the correct terms for things and the correct uh, functions of things. Yeah, We often think an education is gaining all this new kind of knowledge, but often it's, it's learning uh, names, how to conceive things and then give them a name. Okay? Uh, And that can be, okay, an example. Have you seen those Escher photos uh, or his drawings, like where you have, he's drawn it like this, and one way you look at it, you can see hands. Another way you look at it, you see something else. Or one way of looking at one of his drawings, there's steps. And another way of looking at it, there's boxes. You're looking at exactly the same thing, but what it becomes depends on 
how you conceptualize it, how you put that data together, and what you call it. Okay, so that's a really good example for even with drawings that they don't uh, have some inherent nature. Yeah. Uh, for another example is when we see photographs, you know, we say, oh, that's so-and-so, that's a human being, that's a rhinoceros, that's a giraffe. Yeah. But for people uh, in very remote areas who have never seen photographs, if you show them a photograph, they cannot pick out those figures the way we can because they've never seen a photograph. Yeah. And so they see all the same colors we see, but the mind doesn't put those colors together to say, those colors and shapes, I should say, together to say, oh, that's a rhinoceros, or oh, that's a human being, because they weren't taught to conceptualize in that way. Okay? In the same way, babies, you know, when you... Uh, dangle things above their, their crib, they don't know that it's a bunch of different things on strings. They just see these colors. There's not really the, the thought of three dimension yet or that certain things being higher or lower. Okay, When babies uh, cry, they often frighten themselves because they don't know that they're the ones who are making the sound. Okay, So this, all this kind of knowledge comes from our conceptualizing and giving something a name. Oh, that's what my voice sounds like. I'm crying. I don't need to get scared that somebody's going to hurt me because I'm making that sound. Okay? So, you know, things exist in this way without having their own innate, intrinsic essence. Okay. However, when, when we see things, it appears to us as if they have an essence that makes them what they are. Okay. We look, gong. Okay. Anybody who comes in the room, and any, you know, reasonable person knows this is a gong. Everybody should know this is a clock. Everybody should know it's a cup. And everybody should know it's a washcloth. Or is it a rag? Hmm. We're going to relate to it differently depending if we label it rag or washcloth. Aren't we? It could be labeled either. Yeah, if you look at it, it's comparatively clean, so maybe it's not a rag. Because <laughs> rags we usually think of as dirty. But you can have clean rags, can't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah not here, maybe. Where I come from, it's called a rag. In the South? She's from the South. <laughs> A wash rag. It's a washcloth. 
<laughs> wash rags are what you wash the floor with. <laughs> with wash rag, you wash your face with a rag. Yes, ma'am, we do. It works just fine. <laughs> Well, in New Zealand, what is it? Napkins are called serviettes, and diapers are called napkins. Nappies. Yeah. Okay. So you you got to be careful sometimes what you ask for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please, could I have a nappy to wipe my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sandals and thongs. We have thongs here, too. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we? We have thongs. Oh, not at the Abbey. Okay. <laughs> what? Thongs? <laughs> not the thongs I wore when I was a kid. Oh, how do you know what kind of wonder where it is? Where have you been going? <laughs> okay, well, I've been a monastic longer than you, so I have no idea what they are. <laughs> are you going to make me Google them? <laughs> <laughs> what? What? The underwear? The shoes? <laughs> oh, okay. Minimalist approach. Okay. So, um, okay. So, for example, with the table, the table has many different parts. Yeah. Independence upon these parts being put together in a certain way, we generate the conception, oh, it's something that can function to put things on, and we give it the name table. And that's how table comes into existence. It's not a table out there by itself, independent of our mind. It becomes a table because our mind puts the parts together, sees it can be used for a certain function, and then give a, gives the, a name to an object that can be used for that function that's made of those kind of parts. Okay, So in talking about how things are designated, they often use the example of a snake and a rope. Okay, so... Okay, so the way the example is, it's, it's uh, a dim room, and in the corner, you see something that's kind of speckled, and it's long and narrow, and it's coiled, yeah? And you go, it's a snake, and get really scared, okay? Then when you go closer and look at it, you see, oh, it's a rope. So the basis of designation, that coiled, speckled thing, okay, can, in one, 
you know, when it's misperceived, we give it the name rope. I mean, we give it the name snake and we get frightened. When we can see it more clearly, we give it the name rope and we're not frightened. Also, a rope you can use to tie things, whereas I wouldn't advocate doing things, tying a package with a live snake. Okay. Yeah. But they use that example as how things are merely designated. You merely give a name to something. And then what it shows, too, is how our mind starts proliferating with what this object is and what it means and what it does and how I should relate to it just based on the name we give it and our past knowledge of what the meaning of that name is. Okay? But the way they show you know, how the fact that things are merely designated in that way indicates that they lack any essence. In other words, that they're empty of inherent existence. Yeah. Is that when you designate snake on that coiled thing, when you look at it, there is absolutely no snake there. Yeah? You saw it in the corner. It sure looked like a snake. You thought it was a snake. But in on that curled thing, you know, there is no snake. Not the color, not the texture, not the shape, not the, you know, the tail end or the head end or whatever, there is nowhere a snake on that object. In the same way, when we label it, when we designate it rope, there is absolutely no rope in that object either. Yeah. Not the color, not the shape, not the texture, not one part, not the other part. Nowhere in that coiled speckled thing is there a rope. However, we can call it a rope and it functions as a rope. We cannot validly call it a snake because it won't function as a snake. But what's similar in both cases is there's neither a rope nor a snake in that basis of designation. And then our mind goes, yeah, I see what you're talking about. But, yes, but, there has to be something there that makes it a rope. Otherwise, why isn't it a snake? There has to be something in that coiled object that makes it a, a, a rope. Otherwise, why can't we just call it snake? Yeah. Sounds valid, like a good question, doesn't it? There's got to be something that is 
rope nature because it's not a snake. But when you look on that basis of designation, there is nothing there, absolutely nothing there that makes it a rope. It's completely our conceptual mind that gives it a, a name. Nothing from the side of the object that is a rope. Basically, the rope is created by our mind on the basis of that external material. And that rope lacks any inherent existence and any existence from its own side. Okay. Now, when you think of yourself, me, don't you feel me, I'm sitting here? Yeah, me. Yeah. I mean, for a moment, just get the sense of me. You know, I'm sitting here. Me. There's a me here. Okay. Now, actually, me came about simply because there's a body and there's a mind and there's different physical components and different mental components and on the basis of all those components having some arrangement and some relationship with each other right now on the basis of that we give it the name I but when we look through this whole thing Everywhere in the body, everywhere in the mind, is there something in it that is me? Is there something in this that is a person? You know, when we investigate, we can't find anything. You know, all we discover is that on the basis of that body and mind, the conceptual mind thinks person and gives it the label I because we feel some familiarity with it. But other people on that same basis of designation impute you. So is this me or is it you? Yeah, who's talking? Me or you? Okay. So you see how things depend on how we conceptualize and how we label them or designate them. But nowhere in that basis of designation is the object that we are designated. Designating. Nowhere. Yeah. If you look back at that cake, you know all the ingredients, the flour and sugar and spices and all these things. Nowhere in those ingredients is there cake. And yet, when we see cake, it looks like that is a cake from its own side, out there, objectively existent, such that all of us who look at it see a cake. Okay. So what this is pointing out 
is there's some mistaken appearance. Okay, The appearance that there's a cake out there, that there's a gong out there, that there's I, even you would say, out there, I would say, in here. You know, all those are just false appearances, mistaken appearances. Because when you search in the basis of designation, you can't find the gong or the person or the cake. And on the basis of the coiled thing in the corner in dim light, you can't find a snake and you can't find a rope. Okay. So what it's showing is that things lack inherent existence, but when we don't investigate what the actual referent of the name is, we can still communicate with each other and know that there are objects. Okay? So when we don't investigate, you know, if, if somebody says, bring me the cup on the table, you look, there's a cup on the table, and you bring it, and we communicate just fine. But if we start to analyze what is that cup, when we say cup, what are we really referring to? And we look in this for a cup, you find water, but you don't find a cup inside of it. Okay? We can't find a cup. There's no inherent cup here in this basis. Okay? So, uh, this, you know, it takes us uh, some time to think about this and consider it. And... Uh, to absorb the the uh, Im- the impact of what this means, and one thing that I find helpful for absorbing the impact is analyzing how we use the word "my" or "mine." Okay, somehow we may say, "Well, there's no I in here," but we still feel like there's me. Okay. If we, you know, think of when you get a car. When you first go to the car dealers, you see the car there, and it's their car. Yeah? And you're looking at it, and you're admiring it. But if it gets dented, it's no problem because it's not your car. You know, it's like, well, it's too bad for the car dealership, but, you know, I don't fret about that. Yeah, it's their car. And they have a nice car. Yeah, it's good, but it's their car. But then you give them a piece of plastic, and they give you the keys to the car, and you can drive your car home. And they also give you your piece of plastic back. Yeah? So isn't that an incredible deal? You gave them plastic. They gave you keys. You have a car. And you got your plastic back. Couldn't be better. 
So now, after that happened, now this car is mine. It's mine. So doesn't it look more beautiful when it's yours? Isn't that kind of shiny color a little bit shinier when it's yours? Isn't that car sexier when it's yours? I don't know how a car can be sexy. I mean, I don't get turned on looking at a car. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, they say cars are sexy. That that shows how stupid we are. <laughs> Isn't it? You know, in the advertisements, get this sexy car. What is sexy about a car? Goodness. Yeah? But this is how stupid we are. Oh, now I have this sexy car. Okay, so... But now it's mine. Okay. And now, if this car gets dented, if this car gets scratched, it has a very different meaning than when that same object had the name car dealer's car. When it's labeled car dealer's car, I'm sorry that it got scratched, but I forget about it the next minute. When it's called my car, then I'm very upset when it gets dented or scratched. What inside that car makes it mine? Why is my reaction towards that same car being dented so different, my reaction so different, depending upon whether I label it car dealer's car or my car. It's pretty much the same car. In fact, it's a little bit older by the time it's my car. But what is it that makes me see my car in a totally different way than I see your car. And what is it in that car that makes it mine? Yeah. You look through the whole car, you know, okay, maybe you open the glove glove compartment and it has the purchase uh, invoice in it. Is that purchase invoice mine? And because that sheet of paper is in the car, it's mine? You know, that's just a sheet of paper. What is it in that car that makes it mine, that changes the meaning of that car so dramatically? Uh, You can't find anything in that car that makes it mine. There's no mine in it at all. It's merely designated mind, mine, because we all agree that when you give people plastic and they give you car keys, then you can call it mine. That's the only reason why. If you don't give them the, the plastic and have them give you the plastic back, then you can't call it mine. Yeah. And in fact, the police come and tell you you can't call it mine 
and they take it away from you. And you say, well, what's the difference between giving plastic and getting back and not, getting, not giving the plastic to start with? It's all kind of the same. And they say, no, it isn't. But it is kind of the same. In either way, you know, the car dealer doesn't have a plastic and they no longer have a car either. <laughs> okay? So all of this happens simply because of our conceptual mind giving meaning to things. But there's nothing inside those objects that are that. Okay? So the point is that when you can see things are dependent arisings, dependent on causes and conditions, dependent on parts and mutual, mutually dependent, dependent on being conceived and designated. You know, whatever something is dependent, that it cannot have its own essence. Okay, that's, that's the point of what we're talking about. Okay, so let me read you something that Jay Rinpoche said. Yeah. All phenomena are also described as posited by conceptuality, like the imputation of a snake to a rope. The speckled color and mode of coiling are similar to those of a snake, and when this is perceived in a dim area, the thought arises with respect to the rope. This is a snake. As for the rope, at that time, the collection and parts of the rope are not even in the slightest way positable as an illustration of a snake. In other words, you can't call the collection of parts of the rope a snake because it doesn't function as was one. Therefore, that snake is merely imputed by conceptuality. Okay, yeah. Now, it's falsely imputed, but just stay with the fact that it's imputed. In the same way, when the thought I arises in dependence on the aggregates, meaning our body and mind, nothing in terms of the aggregates, neither the collection that is the continuum of the earlier and later moments of the body and mind, nor the collection of the parts, the body and mind being collected together at one time, nor the part of those mental and physical aggregates. Nothing there is even in the slightest way positable as an illustration of that I. Yeah? So when we say I and we feel so strongly, I, there's nothing within this thing that we are calling I that is I. And that alone warrants the name I. Yeah? There's just a collection of body and mind parts, aggregates, and then we conceive and designate I. 
Okay. So, questions, comments? Okay, two comments. First one is about the rope and the snake. Mm-hmm. I was walking Karuna the other day. Mm-hmm. I came upon a piece of rope on the ground, a little white one. And she crouched down and sidled up to it and beat it and jumped back. And then she did it again. Bang! Jumped back. About the third time she did it, she sniffed it and said, not snake. I walked off. <laughs> you, can see, you can see her say, not snake. Okay, we're done. <laughs> so it's not just humans. Yeah. And the second one is about the, the car. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes the bank owns a car, but you still say it's mine. Now, the bank may not agree with you, but you still say it's mine, and you react to it like it's mine. Ah, that's true. But actually, somebody else owns it. The bank owns it, yeah. The bank owns it, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But we do say it's mine, and we take great pride in it. But when it gets dented, then the bank says, you own it. (laughs) The bank doesn't say, uh, we own it at that point. Uh I am interested to hear your uh, reaction to good fortune and bad fortune. Mm. I've had plenty of bad fortune, and that doesn't seem like it's mine. But when I have good fortune, that is definitely mine. Oh, yeah. Aren't they both just the same? Right, yeah. But bad fortune is caused by somebody else. Good fortune is due to how... Wonderful we are. Yeah? Okay. Not too consistent, are we? (laughs) So when you have, like, physical pain, Uh you have physical sensations, and that seems like direct experience of, like, somatosensory or touch sensation, Uh somatosensory sensation. But what would you say about mental pain? Like, say if you were thinking about, like, in the four establishments of mindfulness, feeling, mm-hmm. they divide it into body feeling and mental feeling. Mm-hmm. Like mental feeling, I was thinking like, when we're angry, for example, something more gross than mental pain, but like anger, a lot of times you have all these thoughts and that's definitely conceptual, but you, what would you find there except for physical symptoms that would be a direct experience? You know, direct, so what directly you, perceived. Yeah, then what's your question? So it seems like that all of the mental feelings would have to be conceptual. No, the mental feelings can be directly perceived. The anger is conceptual, but the unhappiness you feel when you're angry, when you, you can look at that, you know, and, and know it. It no. When you have mental pain, when you're unhappy, your body doesn't hurt. You just have emotional pain. Nothing physically hurts. It's just emotional pain. Okay, so that is known by the mental consciousness. Yeah, according to Prasangikas. Yeah, according to Prasangikas. Okay. But what's interesting is when you experience pain, to say, what about this pain is mine? 
because we experience pain and immediately there's, I'm in pain. And then to question, you know, who is the I that's in pain? Yeah. Whose pain is this? You know, you, you, you know, like your knee hurts or something. And it's even interesting. Try and find the exact area where the pain in your knee exists or the pain in your toe or in your finger or wherever you hurt. Try and see if you can draw a, lo- a mental line around it and if it stays exactly the same. And then if you just focus on that pain and stop imagining your body with that sensation belonging there. Because usually when we have physical pain, there's the image, internal image of our body, and then there's one part we're emphasizing. But when you can sometimes forget that image of the body being there and thinking that part hurts, then the experience of the pain is different. And where is that pain? And whose pain is it? So it's, it's very difficult to penetrate, but it's interesting to play with and see what you come up with. It starts to rattle our assumptions, which is good. Someone online asks, how does the conceptual mind function with PTSD? Like what role does it play? Mm. With PTSD... I think what's happening is, you know, there's a very vivid memory that's that coming that's so strong that somebody experiences it as if it's happening right now. Yeah, because the, the, the memory is so strong, the, the image is so clear. But for sure, that event is not ha- happening now. Yeah, but it appears so vividly. And so the body physiologically reacts that way. The mind reacts that way. Yeah, but there's nothing. But is it a direct cognition of the memory? No, the memory is always conceptual. Yeah, because you can't directly perceive an object in the past. The object that existed in the past no longer exists. You can only have a direct perceiver of a present object. Okay. Make some sense? Okay. Okay, then we'll close. So think a little bit about it and just kind of try look, looking at your experience. <laughs> 